0: My name is Owen Flynn and welcome to episode 26 of the Trail Running Ireland podcast. It's been a sad few days on the trails and mountains of Ireland with the tragedy in the Comera Mountains and the very sad passing of Gillian Ryan after a tragic accident while out running. And over the last 48 hours the Mourne Mountains and the National Park in Killarney have been burning with many hectares of natural landscape and habitat destroyed. So this week the only thing to talk about, the only thing we want to talk about is safety on the mountains. So let's get our running gear on, let's go. hey everybody thank you for joining us again and as i just mentioned we have a special show on safety this week Renny borg from running coach ireland will join us momentarily to talk to us about being in the right condition physically before we head out to tackle a big mountain training session and then our friend simon kelly from the waterfall trail running festival will chat to us about logistics gear and lots of good tips and advice to help us enjoy our running on the trails and to help get us home safely one piece of great news just in though as we record is the fantastic run by Aoife Cook who has just qualified for the Tokyo Olympics after winning the Cheshire Elite Marathon in a time of 2 hours 28 minutes 36 seconds which places her fourth on the all-time Irish records list well done to Aoife great to see some good news on the roads and while we very much are a trail running podcast we do love our road running as well before we call in Rene a special thank you to our new Patreons who signed up in the past week Stephen mccabe larry mahoney and conor nolan thanks a million, guys every three euros and every six euros contribution keeps the show going and if you haven't had the chance to pop over to trail running ireland on patreon please do so everyone as it just means that we don't need to be chasing our tail looking for sponsors in a very difficult time for all right so let's call in Rene borg for the first of our segments today on safety in the mountains Rene, Rene, great to have you again with us this week. How are you keeping, mate?
1: Yeah, yeah, no, keeping very good on. I was just saying we're well on top of the work this week and we've had a few nice days of sunshine to enjoy as well on top of it.
0: Excellent. And hopefully, Rene, things can only get better. I think there was a song with those lyrics in it back in the day. Things can only get better. and We're we're getting close to the good days again,
1: hopefully. Yeah, hopefully. We'll see you on let <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Take it day by day. I'm, I'm done with predictions, personally.
0: Fair enough. Well, listen, with that in mind, really, and, you know, with the, the probability of being able to get back out onto the mountains soon, if we're not already doing it this week and last weekend, with the 5k limit lifted, you know, we just wanted to do a piece this week on safety in the mountains simon is going to come on now in about 15 minutes time to talk about the logistics of the mountains and trail running the hardware involved and what kit and what gear we need to bring with us and what i was thinking maybe for our training slot today was just some good tips some good advice for people to take into account as we get ready to go back onto the mountains for those two, three, four hour trail runs that we've all missed over the last couple of months, hard tempo runs on the mountains, just that we don't rush back out. We don't end up injured within the first couple of weeks so we don't end up bunking on one of our long four or five hour treks because our bodies have been detrained over the last couple of months. So maybe if you had any tips, any general advice, just to try and help prevent those two aspects, maybe.
1: Yeah, I know when you were telling me, you know, we were going to have this conversation, I was obviously saying to you, you know, I'm not a a safety expert, but thankfully, um, from my perspective, you know, to cover the topics that Simon won't cover, a lot of the principles that you apply for training, for, for how you attack your physical preparation, is also very similar to the principles you can use you know to kind of maximize the, or minimize it's probably better minimize the chances that you have a bad outcome when you take on any task and obviously you know in your example let's say you know as you've been training around the local park for ages and you really want to go back very very long hill run Um, And that may be no problem at all if you're already super experienced, you know, you've been in the mountains for decades, you might have a mountain leader education or something like that, you know, so if you're that prepared, then the only problem is just to ease the body back into it, Um, which means that the same principle you use for everything else, you know, take it in gradual steps, don't go from one hour and the flat park to, you know, five hours um, on the toughest hills of, of Wicklow or wherever, Straight away, yeah. you know, unless you <laughs> uh, unless you have absolute reason to believe that for you, that transition is nothing. Um,
0: and, I, and I've seen it happen, René, I've seen it happen over the years that very good, say, track runners, very good club road runners have come out, say, to some of the inner races, and they really struggle. And these guys could be some of the best road and track runners in the country, but they get to the mountains, and as soon as they hit a sharp incline, Their calves, their their muscles just don't have the training for it. So the same goes for, I think, people of all levels as well. That maybe to take advantage of all those local hills, local stretches in the parks where you can practice some uphill running before you hit the big high, far mountains.
1: Yeah, like if we go, you know, as you say, we were talking just before this call, you were saying there's been quite a few, you know, accidents and, and deaths from other causes in the hills over the last few years. And indeed, if you look at the last hundred years, you know, in races and out on training runs, we have these reports. And, you know, statistically, it's very important, of course, that, you know, if you look at it statistically, it's it's your chances are very low, right? It's um, it, it's just that we remember them, you know, first of all, because we a lot of time we can put a face and a name on them. We might have known them ourselves. Um, but it is rare. So, you know, first of all, don't I don't want anyone to leave this podcast thinking, you know, that you're taking your life in your hands every time you hit out in the hills. But there are there's always a possibility with anything you do in life of a negative outcome. Um and obviously we we I think most of us like to take certain risks because it's what makes life worth living, it's what makes life exciting. Um and without risk, you couldn't do anything at all, right? Because no matter what you do, there's some kind of risk. So it's just trying to figure out um what is too much, you know, when am I taking on a situation where although I feel um, maybe confident going into it, that, that I am actually taking a risk that's quite high. And we're not talking about trying to prevent random accidents, you know, because we know from experience and from history that even some of the very best and most skilled people have obviously had accidents, right? I think everyone remembers the, the rock climber and Michael Reardon, you know, when he got swept off and um, one of the cliffs over on the West coast, I think that's nearly 15 years ago. And he was obviously one of the best in the world, you know, so the, but he also took, he took on dangerous tasks for that very reason, you know, because he had the ability to, to really test, but he was probably just unfortunate, right? In his case. So we're not we're not saying we're not really talking about these situations. We know you could do everything right, you could be fully prepared, and you could take a, a stupid slip. Um, but what we can do as individuals is we can look at, you know, okay, we need to be fit enough in terms of the basic physical task, which is the volume and intensity. You know, so that's everything we've been talking about for a year. So if that's where I know you mentioned the word bonking, I think, Owen, um. Earlier, that's
0: yeah, uh, it was something many <laughs> really, that I thought would be good to cover because you know what we want to try and avoid is people up in the mountains and they haven't maybe brought enough fuel with them, or they haven't just trained their body to go for such a long time without getting carbohydrates into them. Because imagine if you're in the middle of a long trail run up in the mountains somewhere, and after two and a half, three hours your body just shuts down. That central governor that Tim Noakes has famously written about for a long time now, it just says, I'm not going any further. And then you're stuck. So if, if there's any strategies, maybe, René, to, to help us avoid bonking.
1: Yeah, it's. A, I thought it's a good starting point to, to look at the, what, what kind of things can you physically prepare, because that's, that's the obvious one. And it's a real deal breaker. You know, when people get... Uh, this it's you know they basically it happens when the body runs out of glycogen um and if that is the fuel that you rely on for your movement um, and you have no what's your exogenous so you know outside supply of of food or, or nutrients then the body will shut down and then it doesn't matter how well prepared you are you know it doesn't really matter how good gear you have how much experience you have how many hard trails you've done because you're no longer functioning properly and it's very similar to what happens when You know, a a similar thing is when you get heat stroke or when you get hypothermia, you know, these are something happens to you because of other steps that you didn't take in your preparation. And now you're no longer in a state to function in the way you normally would. And that's when you're obviously extremely vulnerable. And, and, you know, another thing would be sleep deprivation during an ultra, for instance, or maybe before, maybe for a long time you've slept very badly and uh, you don't realize how tired you actually are and that means your coordination, your reactions, other things are not where you expect them to be and then an accident happens because, because of that. Or, so bonking, the first thing there is really all the zone 1 and zone 2 training we've talked about. Yeah. That is part of the key. right? If you are a zone 3 machine, you know, as we said, this kind of mistake of drifting into moderate training all the time, then you are very reliant on carbohydrates. Um, at many paces and many intensities and your fat burning is poor. And it means you're not as it's I think it's what Patty Barrett called metabolically flexible. So you want to be metabolically flexible when you go out for long periods, you want to trust that you have a system that if you just dose down the intensity, you can keep going on your own fuel for a long time, because the reality is there's enough fat in your body for days. And usually what stops us is that the sugar has run so critically low and we have no, we have never trained to be in that state. And that means the body can't switch over effectively onto what's called, that's actually a backup, an emergency metabolism, as you would expect from a human being, you know, that has evolved over millions of years, you know, from, from other forms that if when Sugar is low. We can obviously burn fat as long as we stay low intensity and as long as we are metabolically flexible. But the brain historically needs sugar. That's what we're all told, right? So you, if there's no sugar, the brain starts to malfunction because it cannot burn fat. But there is a backup of metabolism called um, ketosis, and ketosis has a bad reputation uh, because some people misunderstand it for the word ketoacidosis, which is which is different. But ketosis is actually it creates a type of um, body that's called a ketone and a ketone is a different type of fuel that can actually work on the brain as a replacement for carbohydrates when there is extremely low Uh, let's say for instance if if for two months you had not been able to get any carbs because you were stranded on some island where there was only animals you could hunt something like that as an example Mm. uh, you can actually still survive because the body will switch given the time onto this backup metabolism. And it's similar to what Eskimos, historical Eskimos would have done in the Arctic, right? You wouldn't be finding any carbohydrates up there. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, so there, so we have this flexibility, but it does need to be trained. And in most people, it's detrained because we have such a plentiful availability of carbohydrates. You know, wherever you look, you stumble over a carbohydrate nearly in, in the modern world. So if you never train zone one, zone two, or you do it very little, and if you stuff your face with carbohydrates from sunset to sundown, you may be vulnerable to these situations where you forgot to pack a snack or something like that. You went out a bit too hard for the first two hours. And when you crash, you crash hard.
0: Yeah, and maybe a good, a good training approach, Rennie, could be of, say, four long runs a month. What would you think of maybe doing, say, two of those long runs Fasted, and say if your bunking point is let's say two hours or two and a half hours, maybe doing eighty percent of that fasted. So at least then you're training your body to search for those um, fat sources as fuel. You're getting better at extending your bunking and length of time that you have. But then maybe due to two Sundays of the month, you're actually practicing taking in gels. So on those long four or five trail-hour runs, you, you've got you've got the best of both worlds. You have your two Sundays a month where you're learning to the fat adapt. And then you've got two Sundays per month where you're learning to take on carbohydrates because at the end of the day, we're out for four or five hours. We need to be able to take on foods as well. And it's trying to get that balance right of being fat adapted to a certain degree but then being able to digest carbohydrates as well, because we just very, very hard unless you're really, really well trained in fat adapted training to get the four or five hours without any sugars going in.
1: Yeah, well, that is really the template we use on, you know, and it's um, we, we have to say we tend to start people on, you know, just try and start your run. Maybe just on, you know, a cup of coffee or tea or some water or whatever in the morning just to get out the door and then have a, your backup snack with you. And the moment you start to feel low uh, or the beginnings of, of, of a bit of weakness, maybe a brain fog, then take it, you know, and, and usually what I find is for most people in the beginning, it happened around the hour when they are not used to running on empty. Uh, So, and that's then the starting point, right? And then we don't usually do it every week in the beginning, as you allude to, because it is stressful to do fasted running. It's a stressor on top of a stressor. You know, the run is a stressor, the fasting is a stressor. So people just need some time. So if they hit it every week, usually in the beginning, it, it can kind of create a state of chronic stress, especially depending on how stressed the athlete otherwise is. Um, And then you extend that time and it tends to happen totally naturally. You know, it tends to be that you simply grab for the bar later because as you do a few of these runs, the body does respond pretty well Uh, for most people. The only thing to be aware of the reason it's individual is that if you were born with 90% slow twitch fibers, you know, type one, uh, you are extremely good at burning fat. And most of your propulsive force comes from muscles that are just really good fat. Oxidases, but okay. if you are a kind of sprint type or middle distance runner, you know you could have maybe sixty percent only slow twitch or less. You know uh, Usain Bolt, they reckon, has ten percent slow twitch. So you see, he's not as metabolically flexible in terms of using fat oxidation. Yeah. So, so you also need. That's where you need to be aware of yourself. You know, if you're a if you're a big machine, if I can use that word, you know, very muscular, very powerful, you can throw around big objects. And things like that. Uh, there's a chance that you're probably more expensive and you're less able to switch over onto fat. So you might need a slightly different approach, you know, because you may never be quite as good at just going out for hours and hours and hours. Uh, it, it was funny
0: that you mentioned Usain Bolt, Rene. I, a picture, an image did come to my mind of uh, Usain Bolt in some trail running gear running around the hills of Wicklow. Um, and that would be a funny sight indeed. Maybe, Rene, another thing just to help the listeners, and especially maybe people that are new to the trails this year as well, who are making that transition from the road scene to the mountains, to forget about pace. And to forget about miles per week, et cetera, that they're doing in training. Because when you're on the trails, you're naturally going to be a lot slower. And you can easily be frustrated maybe when you're used to doing, say, an eight-mile run on a a Saturday morning and then a 13-mile run on a Sunday, where that 13-mile run on a Sunday might only be maybe seven or eight miles in the same time on the mountains. And we need to just learn to... Just, re- just uh, forget about the pace and just calm the pace right down because if we try and maintain the same pace as we do on the roads, of course, it will be impossible. We'll just get frustrated and we'll get tired very, very quickly.
1: Yeah, as you know, the muscular demands are much higher on the trail, both because of the uphill and the downhill, but also because the terrain doesn't give you as back, uh, back as much free energy. You know, There's greater stability requirements because it's uneven You know, and the softness changes, all these things. Um, so that's of course as well, that's why you need to ease into it, you know, because you need to get your body used to, to that. You need to see how you react pace wise, because you might, if you're new to the trail and listening to this and you think, oh yeah, you know, I usually bang out 20 K and I'll cover that easily in two hours, but then you might, the route you pick, it looked look good on the map, but you might find you are at two hours in and you've only covered 16 K and uh, what's left is pretty rough. Uh, or maybe you've taken a wrong turn at that stage, you know, you're getting really, really tired. That's the sort of situation where it can become if not dangerous, which it could become, right? But it it could just become quite unpleasant and it could become a real struggle to get yourself home. And, you know, I think everyone has made a mistake like that going into the hills. And if they haven't, they're probably being dishonest. You know, I, I certainly remember outings where I miscalculated how long it would take. And then you were out, you know, you were out of the food, you were out of the water. You were feeling really beat and it just became like a bit of a, a slog home you know by the time you saw the car you couldn't have been more relieved
0: maybe one final point Renny, before we call in Simon and start talking about some of the gear that we need to stay safe and some of the preparations that we can do one thing maybe to quickly touch on Renny, and maybe we can take a deep dive in another episode of course accidents can very much happen and injuries can happen when we run downhill in the mountains. So maybe any quick tips, Renny, anything quickly that you'd like to say for people that are listening in that that haven't done much downhill running? Is it a case of just letting yourself fly, hope for the best, or do we need to be a little bit careful and actually go into those downhill, especially the technical descents, very, very carefully and take our time?
1: Yeah, you need to work within your comfort zone because, you know, it's the if you do you know it's it's a general principle yes you need to let yourself go because it's less stress on the body um but if the hill you're running down is beyond your technical capabilities you know or if you psychologically freak out because you're not used to running down it you know so you'll be very tense you you're probably gonna have a fall right it's it's a very real possibility so i, I think we had a downhill session on when, one of the very early ones maybe we should re- revisit it at some stage um but it's you know, you need, you need to, what we would usually do is break it up for people. So if I know that in a race, they, they're going to have something like Crowpatrick, uh, you know, where it's it's scree, it's loose rocks, it's very steep gradients, which is more, you know, it's a little bit harder on the mind once the gradient becomes very acute. Uh, how can you break that down? How can you ease people into that? You know, so it's usually by picking some hills that are a little bit easier than that and then working your way up, Um and, and that's the way to do it, you know. So the first time you see a descent in front of you where you're like, whoa, <laughs> what's this? Obviously, you don't just put your head down, <laughs> you know, because they, it's probably going to be beyond your current ability. So you need to feel your way into it uh, and and play with it, you know, give yourself time. But it, it's it's a big topic on, so it's probably hard to answer in a satisfying way. But um, I think we should take it in the future. And, and as well with, you know, the environment, I think we talked about the pre-call as well. You know, there's so many things with the environment you can prepare yourself for, you know, the altitude, the heat, the cold, uh, local wildlife, not such a big problem in Ireland, but in other places, and the lack of access to certain amenities, maybe that's something we can, I think we should book that in for some of the future calls, because as a trail runner, that's something you need to consider in your sessions as well, you know, whatever environmental factors will be on your run, you need to find a way to ease yourself into them.
0: Yeah, and I know we had a request from one of the listeners, Rennie, as well this weekend, Wayne Lee, who um, listens into the show every week, and he's very grateful of the advice, Rennie, that you give, and he was just asking maybe could we discuss another time as well, training for people who are on shifts that it can be very very difficult for them they might be doing two long nights back to back followed by two maybe days back to back then a couple of days off so maybe Randy if we could ask to put that maybe in the diary because I'm sure there's a lot of people out there that are trying to combine shift working with um, good quality training as well
1: yeah and we work with a few of them so we can definitely talk to that
0: cool great friendly. Well, listen enjoy your training enjoy your running this week stay safe and we'll look forward to talking to you in the next episode
1: all right thank you all My name is Sarah McCormack.
0: My name is Brian Fury. My name is Nicola Duncan.
1: My name is Zach Hanna. My name is Mark Ryan. I'm a, I'm, a I'm a mountain runner. I'm a mountain runner. I'm a mountain runner.
0: I'm a mountain
2: runner.
1: I'm a mountain runner.
0: Hi, my name is Harriet and
2: I'm a mountain runner. You're listening to Trail Running Ireland. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. <laughs>
0: For our feature interview this week, it's great to have back on the show, Simon Kelly. Simon, in addition to keeping us up to date with the latest stories, races and results on the podcast, Simon is a regular ultra trail runner who tackles the hills almost always solo. He is the race director and safety officer for the Waterfall Trail Running Festival and he has worked with various search and rescue organisations and is currently an active member of the Ivera Coast Guard Search and Rescue and Cliff Climbing Team. So let's call in Simon for a very special feature on safety for trail and mountain running. Simon, Simon Kelly from the Waterfall Trail Running Festival. Simon, it's great to have you back. You've been sitting up in the stand for the last couple of weeks with the last couple of months, Simon, even with no races to report on. And we wish it was for races that you were joining us back um, on the show again this week. But it's for far more serious matters, unfortunately.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, it's something that's uh, very much to the forefront and, um, you know, safety is something that uh, I I take very seriously. Some people would say I'm overly risk averse, but I don't think you can be overly risk averse, you know, plan for the worst and then hopefully you'll you'll prevent um, a serious situation being even worse.
0: Yeah, and, and I mean, I just thought this week, Simon, that instead of having our normal chat with, you know, one of... The country's top runners, top mountain or trail runners, where we're talking about motivation and training hard and getting good results. Even some of our listeners um, were in touch during the week. Simon asking us, could we do a piece on safety after the the tragedy that happened for Gillian, Gillian Ryan at the start of the week? And just to, to set the scene for our 30, 35 minute Conversation now, Simon, about safety on the mountains. Gillian, Gillian's tragedy wasn't the only tragedy over the last couple of months. You know, there's been a couple of high profile accidents um, since last winter. We remember, of course, the, the Team GB mountain runner, Chris Smith, who was an extremely popular guy in, in mountain running in Europe and, and in England, of course. He had a terrible accident at the age of 43 in the Perthshire Hills in October 2020. And um, the, the, the world-renowned trail runner, Andrea Husser, she died in December 2020, Simon, at the age of 46, after a 140-metre 100 meter fall crossing a stream in the Alps. An Italian trail runner in November, Simone Massetti, a 200-metre fall in Mount Palino, And then, of course, Gillian this week um, in the Comora Mountains as well. So hopefully what we'll discuss in the next half an hour it, if anybody can pick up one little thing or even pass on a bit of knowledge, a few tips that might help prevent an accident over the coming months as people return to the mountains and return to the trails. But, well, then we'd have done something positive today, Simon. And, and maybe we could just start off the conversation, Simon, by by telling us where your own interest in safety on the mountains came from.
2: Well, uh, my day-to-day previously was in events and I looked after a lot of spectator safety management which obviously was a different challenge but uh, kind of on mass so when i took to trail running and getting out in the hills um i felt that there was always a little bit of risk there i was always kind of risk assessing and risk adverse and um i kind of decided i'd learn a little bit about it and through that i got involved with mountain rescue um and search and rescue as well and i've just carried that forward really and um, because my view is it's not a case of if I'm going to come a cropper, it's when. As I told you a few minutes ago in our lead in, three times yesterday, I ended up on the ground, all a nice, wet, soft moss. But it happens when you're out running in these environments. And I was running on solo. Now, I had a heavy backpack and a lot of things. And so, you know, I'll go through a couple of the things that maybe help and just take down that risk.
0: Yeah, and not even little accidents, but I mean, we can get lost so easily as well, can't we, on trails? I mean, a couple of times there when I was getting ready for my race there last weekend up in the High Mountains here in Grand Canaria, I was out prepping the course and there was one Saturday, I remember, you know, I got lost for about six or seven minutes. And six or seven minutes when you're out training, can seem like an eternity. So I just had to try and remain patient, remain focused, look at my watch that I was wearing that had my route built into it and just keep on going back to try and find that um, short, sharp turn that I'd missed uh, when I was coming down the, the trail in the first instance. But let's, let, let's try and be positive, Simon. Let's bring a bit of energy to the conversation and let's talk about what we can do to make sure that when we do go out, we enjoy it. We get through it safely and we get back home safe and sound as well. So maybe the first thing that we could touch on is preparing and planning your route, planning your route and how long you think that it might take you to do whatever training session that you want to do
2: absolutely i mean your your route plan and time estimate when you're heading out to the hills is is very different so using the tools we have available like paper maps i love a paper map there's something tangible about it you can look and mark out now knowing how to read the map we'll probably talk about that a little bit later um, there's view ranger there's loads of tools like google earth on strava you can see people who have run the routes before or on your Garmin connect And then you could get a GPX file, which will be developed possibly by another runner that you can upload to your GPS watch or even just put it onto your computer to give you an estimate. Now, picking your route is really important in that because making sure it's not too challenging for your current fitness and experience. We've all come back from time off the hills. Uh, We've been keeping our fitness up, doing a bit of road runs. We get back in the hills. It's a different world. A good kind of example of the difference is a 10k road run that would take about 40 minutes for a runner they head out into the hills they could be 90 minutes or longer on a trail for a 10k and one of my favorite places to run which is a good challenging route the kumlachra horseshoe that down there in the reeks it's a 12k route it sounds like okay that's fine we can get out there but an elite mountain runner down there would be hard pushed to get around there in under three hours. It's a really strenuous, um, challenging route that has a lot of elevation. It has um, a couple of ridges as well. So it's just to be aware of where you're going, what you're doing and plan ahead.
0: It's a great last point that you said there, Simon, especially, I think, for maybe road runners who are coming onto the mountains and the trails for the first time after this summer, after, you know, running every road possible within their 5k limit, you know, they they want to try something new. And again, just to emphasize that point again, you might be used to say doing your long run on a Sunday, let's say 13 miles around, you know, your local park, around the local estate or whatever the local roads. And you might say, Oh, well let's go and do 20k, 13 miles in the mountains. And that may be one hour, 42 hour run on the roads could easily be twice as that. And that's nearly, it's nearly a good gauge, Simon, isn't it? That you can nearly double your time for the equivalent distance in the mountains compared to, say, a flat road run. You know, granted, of course, there's different elevations and different descents and so on, but nearly doubling your time is is quite a good guesstimate, isn't it?
2: It's a good rule of thumb, and it provides one thing that we all love, finishing a bit early and going, "Ah, we were a bit quicker today. It gives you a good sense of well-being anyway
0: yeah but listen say that we have our roots we have our roots on our GPS watches and just to say that some of the GPS watches they're so good these days aren't they that if you do have it uploaded onto your watch and it's not too hard to do I only recently started doing it myself Simon over the last couple of months to be honest and it has really helped me being on trails that I don't know I might go 30 meters past um, a right turn or a left turn and the watch beeps and I just go back recalculate my steps and I'm back on the trail so those GPS systems on the watches are fantastic. So we've got our route established. We've adapted our time schedule as well. Maybe let's talk about clothing as well. And one of the most important things is shoes. And, you know, I've been guilty of this sign myself for many years. Is going on the majority of my mountain runs with my with my road shoes, my Adi Zero Bostons. Um, but, of course, they're just not good enough a lot of the time. And the more you can get on the trails with a proper trail shoe, the better.
2: Yeah, well, having run with yourself over in Gran Canaria, I mean, there are some fairly nice, you know, smooth groomed trails there as well, which a roads sure you will be fine. But I find in, in Ireland, uh, you're always dealing with water. There's always going to be something soggy slippy there might be some slick rock which no matter what trail shoes you have you're going to be really struggling so it's assessing the ground but making sure that you're going out with something robust another big thing with trail shoes is they tend to have what they call a rock plate in it so it'll protect the bottoms of your feet as well from those jagged or sharp rocks and a road shoe just won't do that and again you won't have the grip clothing is something i'm kind of i i have a bit of fun with myself because one of the things i do say to a lot of people is get some bright colors um for the simple thing that if you're in a bright orange t-shirt and you do come a cropper you're easy to spot and the best thing about it that i find is i always get all my gear i get the best stuff at really nice discounts because people don't like wearing the bright oranges and the pinks or whatever else. But to be honest, if you do need it and if you do come a cropper and you need something so people can see you, those bright colors are fantastic to have. And you can even use them as a flag. One of the things I got for a present a few years back was a really, really high quality shake dry jacket. Performance-wise, material-wise, the best piece of kit i have bring it it's tiny stuff down to next to nothing but when i got it it was black and i went god you know i run nights i i you know if it's dark and wet and raining i'm black and you come a cropper you're, you're almost invisible and then i found out that unbelievably it was only produced in black they didn't even produce a bright color personally wow, yeah. i was really surprised by that because it's such a simple thing that can be so helpful if you need it yeah. The other and thing,
0: yeah, i was just going to say. So, I'm just the only tip as well. Just on the on the shoes is like with any pair of running shoes that we have, whether we're on the roads or we're on the trails, before you go out in them for that first big run up in the mountains, do wear them around the house first. Wear them going for walks to collect the kids or walks to go shopping because what you don't want is a fantastic pair of new trail shoes and on your first long two or three hour trek up the mountains, you get blisters after an hour and then you're hobbling for the next two hours and it's a big sufferfest. So the same rules applies for, for trail shoes and mountain shoes, just like any other um, road racing shoe as well. And yeah, and absolutely with the jackets, I think this is the one time where we don't have to feel guilty about maybe spending 100 euros plus on a good quality jacket. I know I've got a lovely Columbia one, which I absolutely love. And Adidas Terrex. I love those ones as well. They're just two of my favorite brands. And I'm sure everybody has their own brands that they enjoy as well. But what were you going to say there, Simon? Sorry, I just interrupted to you as you're moving on to the next point
2: yeah i was just kind of going through clothing again um, the most valuable and simplest and cheapest thing i have in my bag every time is some buffs or neck gaiters they're really good not only for you know having comfort wise but they're so versatile i've heard of people tying them around their shoes when their shoes are split and ripped they can be used for compression if you do have a cut or anything like that they're really, really versatile, and if you look at the nine ways to wear them, so you can do the hash, you can do the balaclava, you can do the neck gaiter, you can do your, your your headband. So there's lots of things, and again, it's about multi multi functional clothing. So having layers up really small packable layers you know so you can layer up layer down as and when your body temperature change and then carry a pack that's suitable to your time or distance so we don't have to go out with a a running backpack every time we head into the hills we're doing a short run but you can get nice little neat waist packs or you can even get shorts that have five or six stash pockets and it's amazing how much you can actually fit in there and make sure that you're well well covered for the duration of your run and again as you say. Allowing for it could be twice as long as your normal road run.
0: Yeah, those waist packs and um, the kind of the real elastic tight waist belt, Simon, and they absolutely brilliant? And I only discovered those myself about two years ago. I think the brand that I have for that is Compress Sport, I think it is. And it's fantastic. I mean, you can put your your phone into it, car keys into it. You could easily get a five hundred milliliter a bottle of water, a gel or two as well, all around your waist. And therefore, you don't have the big backpack over your shoulders. And it's very, very light. So, I mean, if anybody doesn't have those and, it's, and is sick of phones knocking around your jacket or knocking around your shorts, those waist belts, the, the Compress Sport one is the one that I have, is absolutely superb. Um, will we move on, Simon, to kit consumables, as in food and water. And if there's ever a good excuse to get a couple of bars of uh, your favorite energy bars um, into you out in the run it's a long trail run it's the perfect time to make sure you've got a couple of bars with you at least
2: absolutely Uh, ultra running has sometimes been referred to by elite athletes as an eating competition with a bit of running in between and i think that's very true that keeping yourself strong and keep making sure you've got that energy because you know you're you're feeding the furnace and that's it your water and fluids, I mean, the, the water is essential, as we know, to carry. And there's a few really smart ways you can you can deal with that. There's bottles now that have filtration on them, so you don't have to be carrying two or three liters of water with you. You can actually use streams and stuff that you pass. One of those filter bottles, I know Salomon do one. Um, there's also, I use Tailwind because I find it really easy to get my electrolytes in. And also it has a little bit of carbohydrates in it. And what I do is dump that into a 500 ml bottle. And I also carry a reservoir then of just pure clean water um, in the backpack. And again, as I say, I travel a little bit heavy. Nutrition wise, you know yourself, it's the energy bars and it's the really dense, high calorie, you know, whether it's gels or whether it's bars or whether, I mean, I love the odds peanut butter sandwich or something like that. Some real food dates, um, you know, and again, Evan Lynch has previously talked about some really, really calorie-dense food that's simple to carry. Half the time, I'll arrive back from a run. I won't have touched any of it, but it's important to have it there just in case something does happen. If you roll an ankle and you're 3K up a hill, it's going to take you a long, long time to get back down, and you may not have access or have someone, and even if you can phone emergency service or phone some kind of rescue, they're going to be a couple of hours getting to you in those scenarios. So trying to get yourself down and make sure that you have that nutrition as well to keep going is is essential.
0: Yeah, and so it's a good rule of thumb. Evan has touched on a couple of times. We mentioned it with René earlier on in our piece about bonking that we can pretty much go two hours but why wait until you bonk, until you start eating? So if you've got your gels with you, you've got your energy bars with you, a good rule of thumb, I think, is kind of standard practice these days for a trail run, even for our marathon runners that we work with, running Coach Ireland, Simon, as well. We recommend taking a gel on board every maybe 40 to 45 minutes. So therefore, you're constantly topping up um, your carbohydrates, energy stores, all through the run, and you're never going down in, in the rain into a reserve point and of course as well so i mean that if we do stay on top of our nutrition and our food as well the recovery for our next run is a lot quicker as well and i know from talking to nicola duncan one of the country's top trail runners that's something that she started to do more and more over the last year or so she's brought more fluid with her she's brought more carbohydrates with her on her big you know she does five six seven hour trail runs But as a result, she's recovering a lot quicker.
2: One of the things that I kind of played with and that I do now is even if I'm only going out for an hour, I'll eat along. It's just to eat along the run and it's just to get the gut used to it and just to make sure your body is accepting food i'm not saying that's for everyone but my goal is doing longer races i'm back in the pack or mid pack i'm going to have to take in a lot of nutrition so even if i'm going out for one hour just to make the body used to the fact that when we're running we're also eating there's no harm in trialing and it's a great opportunity to try a new product or a different gel or because some of them won't agree with you
0: Yeah, and there we bring up fasted training. Simon, of course, we had a good conversation with Evan a couple of weeks ago. So if anybody didn't hear that nutrition episode, do go back and give it a listen where we spoke about fasted running. There's a time and a place for it, but maybe not when you're doing a big, um, hard trail effort for a couple of hours. It's important to top up before you head out. Moving on, Simon, to a very important part of our kit. If something does go wrong, the emergency kit, what should we bring with us for those big, long efforts?
2: Well, I have a long list. So, I mean, it's very, very simple stuff. And it's try, I try to keep it as simple and as small as possible. And while it sounds like a long list, I actually put my stuff together and decided to weigh it there. And I managed to weigh it there yesterday. 600 grams fitted everything, with the exception of my phone. So the emergency kit, phone. Big thing, charge it. Make sure it's fully charged. That's essential because you can even get onto Google Maps if you get off track or something like that. But as a backup, a paper-based map, always a good idea. Sketch on it. And a quick thing that I do with my my map is if I have it sketched out, I'll take a photo and send it to a friend or send it to someone to say, this is where I'm going. And A whistle, you can get an emergency whistle. They weigh nothing have them in there. A lot of the backpacks have whistles built into them as well. So again, just to be able to uh, alert someone. A tiny thing, and I said this to you before, the emergency blanket. You can get little foil blankets if you're not going too far. I carry a bivvy bag myself. It's just my own preference. I have a little small one that packs down, but an emergency blanket, I mean, it's it's a foil blanket. It's going to be good for a few hours if you do come a cropper. Again, backup food. No harm in having nutrition left when you get back because if you do get delayed or you get slowed down, you get off track, you might need it. A torch, even if you're going out for a run in the morning, you just never know. You might need to signal someone. You might need come a cropper. You might say, okay, I'm going to keep going on and darkness falls or for whatever reason, a torch is well handy to have. Sanitizer, I carry a little um, spray sanitizer. It's like an alcohol-based one. And for me, again, it's multifunction. If I get a cut, I can spray it on that, clean that. But also, if nature calls, I'm able to use it to sanitize my hands after because I'm going to be eating with my hands following that. Um, And also the final bit that sanitizer does as well is you can use it if you need to sterilize anything, wounds or before you treat your own wounds. So I use that. As I say, it's a water based uh, not a water, but a liquid alcohol sanitizer. A basic first aid kit, it doesn't have to be huge. Something with a bit of a bandage in it, some antiseptic, Mm -hmm. if if you can have it. Again, my sanitizer covers that, so it's not too bad. If you have one dressing, again, use the sanitizer, which you've had anyway. Put a bandage on and throw a buff over the top, and there you go. You've got a very secure uh, dressing, which will apply a bit of pressure. Sunscreen probably more so in some of your clients, but you will get burnt if you're out there in Ireland. You can, I decant them into a tiny little spray bottle. It's like a pen. And I just put a little bit of sunscreen in there just in case I need it. It was one of those kind of mist spray ones. And then clothing. So we talked about clothing earlier, but your emergency kit is slightly different. So something that's warm, I like to bring a long sleeve merino top. If it's you know a little bit colder, I'll bring a down jacket and then waterproof layers. And waterproof layers aren't only for being out when it's wet. So if you know it's not going to rain, if you are out, you're exposed, you're in wind on a sunny day, you're going to get cold. Waterproof layers will give you a wind block. They'll also maintain your body temperature. And a really, really high quality uh, heat retention system is you throw on, let's say, your uh, merino top, wrap your foil blanket around you. Put your waterproof top over that. You'll be warm and toasty for quite a few hours, even if you're not moving. And the combined weight of that stuff is time.
0: Brilliant advice, Simon. Absolutely superb advice. Two small things that I might throw into the mix as well. You mentioned sunscreen for sunny days. Don't forget your cap, you know, your, your standard runner and running baseball cap. Always bring a cap with you when it's sunny. It just keeps the heat off your head, which is so important in terms of just keeping your whole body nice and cool. When I'm training here, of course, Gran Canaria, a fairly sunny place. There's not a day that I go outside without um, a baseball cap on me. And especially in Ireland, as we come into the summertime as well. Stick the cap on, and that will help prevent any sunburning in the in the upper head area. The second one that I m- wanted to say, Simon, as well, was the emergency blanket. It's such a, you know, such a useful thing, isn't it? And maybe people that are new to trail running, like I was a couple of years ago, I thought, oh, an emergency blanket, where am I going to put that when I'm going out in the run for two hours or whatever? Couldn't be bothered. But then I actually saw what they were. And for anybody who hasn't seen one, Go to your local mountaineering shop or sports shop or whatever. Ask to see one. And they're tiny little things, Simon, aren't they? They're only about 20 grams, maybe 25 grams at most. They fold up nice and neat, but they literally could be a lifesaver.
2: They're smaller than your phone. If you put it in the same pocket as your phone, it actually protects the phone as well. So, I mean, they're so simple to carry. As you say, they weigh absolutely nothing. And if you do need them, they're going to be worth more than your phone and every other piece of kit you have.
0: Yeah. Another important piece of kit, Simon, that you have on our list here for today is the comfort kit. So I'll let you maybe go through that one.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's a, a very simple one, uh, just out the trails. You know, carry a bit of toilet paper. I carry these bio wet wipes. And again, they're they're biodegradable, but they're really simple. Again, if you get a cut, they're multi-purpose. You can clean off a cut, then spray my sanitizer on it. And there you go. And then the sanitizer doubles up on that. And I'll only make one comment because you know it's not exactly the nicest discussion point, but if you do get caught short and you have to go off, just make sure, dig a hole and bury. (laughs) That's all I'm saying, because there's people running after. (laughs)
0: <laughs> and You know, just just like a dog would, you know, throw a bit of muck on and um, whatever you did uh, and then just keep on going, move on. The next piece, Simon, was handy apps on the phone. You've mentioned a couple of things like, you know, Google Maps, very important, weather maps as well. And then there was one or two that I hadn't seen before, grid ref and what three words?
2: What were those two? So GridRef is, if you search GridRef in the Apple Store or in the Android market or marketplace, GridRef will literally, you open it and all it does is it gives you a sequence of numbers and that's your geographic location. And the mountain rescue teams work off grid references, so they'll be able to pinpoint you within three meters of where you are. What three words is something that I think has revolutionized that And literally put in what? The number three words to find the app. And I'm surprised it hasn't had greater um, coverage because you take any point, you open that app, it gives you three words and that's it. So it could be duvet monkey tractor. And the people who created it divided up the whole globe into one meter by one meter squares. The whole globe. And it's a combination of three unique words. So if it's blowing a gale, you're trying to communicate numbers, can be a little bit more difficult. All you can do, give three words, and there you go. Someone else who has the app can put in the three words. And I do know that the emergency services do have access to that app as well because people do use it. It's more used in the States. There's some people using it in the UK now. But in terms of how simple it is and such a simple idea, I have it on my phone all of the time. And that's, I suppose, leading into I am involved with Coast Guard and Search and Rescue. Sometimes we do get the calls. We do have to respond. And it's just a really easy way to tell people where you are.
0: Yeah, some great technology. And, of course, you you mentioned the weather apps as well, Simon. So important just to check the weather before you go. And even apart from all, say, the high-end technology The more traditional, simple things like just tell a friend where you're going, not only maybe tell a friend, but if you can, as much as possible, get out running with friends, get out running on the trails in groups and certainly safety in numbers.
2: Uh, uh, Totally. Like share your plan. And as I say, what I'll do, sometimes I'll take a picture of the map and I'll send it off. And it doesn't have to be. I don't always send it to my wife. Sometimes I will, and she understands the map, so she'll be able to work it out. But, you know, I'm down a Kerry of a friend in Dublin. I run with all the time as well, and I have run with it in the past. And I'll send him just a photo of the map, and there'll be a bit of banter back and cr- forward. I'll send him a photo. There are some tracking apps. If you're going out solo in a regular run, you, you know, there's uh, My Buddy Beacon, where you can share your location and that. But, On your general day-to-day runs, that's probably not really necessary. And then the big thing is the after bit. So maybe we'll come on to that in a second, because I was saying that during and after, there are a few things to kind of remember. And that's check your progress and check your kit. Make sure you haven't dropped something and make sure you're on target. You could be 30 minutes ahead or 30 minutes behind your target. And it's, important to know when that time is slipping because obviously it's going to slip further and further if you get more tired you're going to be less likely to check in on it check in with your contacts. so if you're off schedule and i listen i fell foul of this when i started running out in the hills i would forget i'd be really i was loving the environment i was in going to forests up over hills it was absolutely fantastic and then i'd get a phone call and it'd be from my wife going Where are you? I I thought you were going to be back an hour ago, you know, and it's just unnecessary stress and concern. And as we know, running in rural environments, sometimes you're not going to have phone coverage for a bit. So just dropping a text saying, hey, I'm a few minutes behind or another nice way to do it is Just send a photo. You see a beautiful place, send a photo and go here and they'll know where you are. And And one of the most
0: important things, Simon, when you are out during your run is to respect the weather, because as we know, up in the mountains, the weather can change so, so quickly. So no matter what run you have, no matter what pace you want to be doing that day, you need to be able to maybe leave the ego behind, leave the precise training plan behind for that day and just respect that weather, because if not... I think is not that when accidents can most happen.
2: Yeah, and hill fog, it's a big, big feature for us. You can get disorientated very, very easily and running up going, okay, this might blow off, this might, um, you know, clear and I'll have a good visibility. If you're not a strong navigator with a map and able to use a compass and compass bearing, uh, I mean, we see in a lot of race kits, and I've joked about this with Eileen Daly, who's the race director there at the Carryway Ultra. Um, you know, people carry around maps and compasses as part of a mandatory kit, but if they do get into a situation where they need to use it, a lot of them don't have any clue how to line up a compass, and it's almost futile they're even carrying the thing. So taking a bit of time to actually educate yourself between... YouTube or anything like that, it'll take five minutes or six minutes just to show how to orientate a map off your landmarks, how to put on a compass. And again, if the mist and fog comes down, you don't have those landmarks. Now you're really, really looking at a compass and it can be quite daunting. It can be quite stressful and it can be quite difficult. So getting used to that. And even when you're out on a good day, use your compass occasionally, get a bearing just to keep your, um, I suppose, skills polished.
0: And one final tip on that, Simon, maybe is that, Don't fall into the trap of looking out your window just before you go. And it might be calm, sunny, a little bit overcast where you are in your local town or city or village or whatever. But then, of course, when you're up maybe 800 meters or even higher, the weather can be very, very different up in the mountains. So just because it's a nice calm day where you are, you might drive down the road an hour. You might run, walk, climb for an hour or two hours ascent. And where you end up could be very, very different. So don't fall into the trap of, oh, it looks sunny out. All I need is a pair of shorts and a T-shirt today.
2: That's very true. I mean, and and then I suppose to close the circle on, on your day out, you know, when you do finish, let your contact know you're finished. You're safe. You're well. You're happy. Big, you know, smile and picture the thumbs up and, and enjoy and celebrate. You've had a good run and, and you know, that's, that's something that's important as well. So someone isn't worrying or thinking, are you back? Are you on target? Are you not? Um, I mean, there's a lot of other things as well. And we kind of chatted about it that you can add in to bring it to the next level. I, I believe very strongly in, in scaling yourselves up and making sure we're getting training and like navigation and training, practice, go and maybe do a mountain skills course, maybe yeah. do a simple first aid course, or there's one, the most valuable course I've done, is remote emergency care. And the great thing about it is it's first aid, but it's focused on remote and wilderness environments. So there's a lot of improvisation in it, and there's a lot of appropriate application of first aid because you're not in a perfect environment where you're in a classroom and lying down and CPR and check your safe scene and whatever else. This is... Appropriate. You'll you'll learn how to maybe splint a leg with a piece of wood or even a a hiking pole. And sometimes hiking poles can function in that. And it's just to try and make sure you know how things can change so quickly and how you can try and adapt to them, and have the necessary skills to make sure you can bring yourself around safe. A big kind of uh, check in as well is have a look at some entry race kit for different races, and particularly if you're training for a certain race carry all that kit with you know how to use it and it's good in training to have it get used to your backpack get used to your waist pack it should become part of your skin and start moving and then a really good chance to trial those longer pushes those moving out of your comfort zone is within races i'm never going to end up on a podium i told you that so many times before that's not my bag however a race environment for me is like an opportunity to have a long really tough run, but with aid stations and safety support that gives me that confidence to try and push a bit further, push into that red zone where you're really struggling and pushing hard and just reducing that risk element because there's other people on the trail, there's other people around and there's aid stations and opportunities to check in and make sure that you're doing it as safe as possible
0: they're a great adventures, Simon aren't they and of course you can meet so many people while you're out on the trails as well you know asking people for a little bit of help here and there and don't be afraid to ask other trail runners as well whether it's in a race or whether it's out training for you know a little bit of help whether it's a bit of nutrition a bit of liquid a bit of kit the trail running community is really great and everybody will always stop and, and help each other and the last thing that I might say Simon just from a training point of view is that you know we mentioned at the start of the conversation that training in the mountains might take twice as long than then a 10k might take twice as long as a 10k on the road for example and people might be a bit frustrated because in ireland we're very much used to counting weekly mileage or weekly kilometers as in oh i need to do 50 miles a week or 60 miles a week where what i've noticed on the continent is that trail runners and mountain runners they don't count their weekly training in mileage or kilometers anymore. It's hours that they're out training. So instead of a 50 mile a week target, they might have an eight hour training time target. So that might just help change the chip in people as well not to be pushing too hard um, while they're out on their training and mountain runs, not to be forcing the pace, that it's okay to go a little bit slower because a lot of time in training uh, for mountain and trail running races, it's actually time on feet that can be a very important training factor for improving. So just something there maybe to, to finish off the conversation with as well.
2: An excellent point, Owen, and I think you're bang on there. And that's what will serve you over time—not pushing into the red zone too much, um, and not trying to put up that huge, huge mileage. And the other side of it is, you'll end up feeling kind of wasted, empty, and you know you won't be enjoying the runs as much if you're pushing that far and that hard into the red zone and overdoing it really so we want to enjoy our run and that's why we go out to the hills to come back with a smile on our face and a couple of stories maybe the odd photo and you know a feeling of uh, happiness enjoyment and fitness
0: Absolutely. And make a few friends along the way, Simon. As as the listeners might remember, that's how we got to know each other. You were missing a famous pair of shorts that day in a trail race in Lanzarote. And thankfully you met a fellow Irishman that was able to help you out with a pair of shorts so you didn't have to run around in your boxers that day. So uh, who knows what friends you might meet along the way as well.
2: Well, I was gonna touch on that because I actually ran in my emergency kit pretty much because luckily <laughs> I had a buff. I had a T-shirt and I had everything else with the exception of a pair of shorts in my backup kit. And that's what I ended up having to wear because, as you know, I didn't have my race kit. It got mislaid along the journey, being thrown in the car the day before when I was arranging meals for my son and all kinds of other stuff. And yeah, I ended up coming to cropper and uh, thank the Lord when I was standing down and I heard over the tannoy, uh, a, a nice uh, Spanish announcement of race beginning to start, which I hardly understood. And then it turned over and it went... It's a great day here today, and I knew it was a paddy, and I knew I was saved. (laughs) Well, you've
0: repaid me in many cups of coffees um, ever since, Simon. So I must say a big thank you for sending over the lovely coffee beans that you did there um, a couple of weeks ago. And Simon, it's been a real pleasure to have you back on the show today. And listen, hopefully we'll have you back sooner rather than later when we get some guidance, maybe on when we can get back out racing. Hopefully some good news will come soon, and uh, within a couple of weeks, maybe we might have have some race reporting from back home to report on
2: fingers crossed take care enjoy the trails and hills and we'll talk to you soon
0: thanks Simon talk to you again A big thank you to René and Simon there, both invaluable members of the Trail Running Ireland podcast family. And thank you again to you guys, the listeners, for tuning in as always. It's been a bad week in many ways on the mountains of Ireland, but with races beginning to take place all over Europe and results coming in now with lots of exciting racing, the good times are coming back soon, everyone. Not too long to go before we're all back up and running and giving it everything on the trails and mountains of our fantastic trails and mountains in ireland a final ask for everyone today to check us out on patreon if you can guys three euros a month will help keep us going let's call it a wrap for today and looking forward to chatting to you all next time in the meantime everyone let's get our running gear on let's go